Welcome to the third episode of Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. This week, I'm joined by BMO's Hong Kong-based trader, Dave Moore. Dave trades various Canadian dollar and U.S. dollar bonds during the Asian session. This week's episode is titled Thoughts from the East. I'm Ben Reitzis, and welcome to Views from the North. Each episode, I will be joined by members of BMO's FIC Sales and Trading Desk to bring you perspectives on the Canadian rates market and the macro economy. We strive to keep this show as interactive as possible by responding directly to questions submitted by our listeners and clients. We value your feedback, so please don't hesitate to reach out with any topics you'd like to hear about. I can be found on Bloomberg or via email at benjamin.writesis at bmo.com. That's benjamin.reitzes at bmo.com. Your input is valued and greatly appreciated. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. A little more about Dave before we start. He's a veteran trader working for the other big blue bank in Canada, as well as a major Canadian pension fund. Not only does Dave trade various products in various currencies, but he's also traded in Toronto, London, and Hong Kong. He's a global guy. Dave is a brilliant guy, and I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to his views as much as I do. Dave, is there anything you'd like to tell our audience about yourself before we start? Well, thanks for having me. I think for the first part, saying veteran trader kind of makes my heart jump a wee bit. Uh, when I look at the number of people that you've had on on the podcast so far, you know, those are the veterans. Those are the guys who've been in the industry that, you know, I look up to and try to emulate. So I would say the imposter syndrome is very real for me at this point and just call myself a trader. And just very grateful to be on the on the podcast, and you know, hopefully, people want to hear what I have to say, even if it's incoherent ramblings. Uh, you know, I'm just glad to be here. Well, I, they won't be. I have uh, pretty pretty high faith that uh, you'll be at, at least entertaining, if if nothing else. <laughs> uh, so let's let's get started here. While there's been an increase in COVID cases in Canada over the past few weeks, the broader market has been pretty range bound, at least until kind of the past couple of days. The reality is that Canada's caseload is, is still quite small from a global perspective, despite the uproar from various levels of government and health officials. Uh, instead, the market is more focused on U.S. fiscal stimulus and, and President Trump's health. Indeed, it looked like uh, the progress in fiscal talks had driven a breakout in lungs until Trump's tweet shot that down on Tuesday, only to see some reversal on Wednesday. But there were also technicals worth watching, uh, and, and I think that's where we'll bring you in, Dave. Uh, how do you balance the fundamental and technical analysis when you look at the market? Uh, it's a good question, um, and it's something I've struggled with with most of my career. When I look back when I first started trading, the main systems that were in play at that time were mean reversion systems. That was either as a portfolio manager or as a market maker. I think that was real because you had actual people making actual decisions around the ranges that were important. Overbought and oversold was were really key points that we focused on every single moment of the day. Um, to you know, it was just something that we we lived and kind of breathed by. And so, when I look at today's world, I actually really struggle with it. I have to work twice as hard just to be half as fast or half as smart. When I look at the breakout, to you know, at least what I thought was going to be the breakout in thirty-year notes in the U.S., we come up to the two hundred day simple moving average. We've hit that around nine times in the last 11 years, I'd say, um, and only one time that's really failed. For 
the last two attempts, let's say, was 2018 and then 2016, that break above the 200-day simple moving average led to a 35 basis point move higher in 30-year yields. Now, that makes sense to me. I, it's such a rare occurrence in our world that I would very much focus my attention on it. But typically, it takes two or three solid breaks above to really, really get stuck in. Now, I'd be remiss in missing the fact that, yeah, yields were much higher and things have changed significantly since you know those prior 11 years. But that doesn't change the fact that you move from system to system. And so if we've been in a mean reversion system that I was trained in, and then you move into, uh, let's call it a momentum or trend system, which I think the, the markets have been in for a very long time now, since around 2015, 2016, I think we're starting to come back to this weird little model of mean reversion and trend and having to look at both, which seems counterintuitive, but in fact, they are very complementary systems. When I then try and pair on fundamental analysis, your fundamental analysis really is based on a, the most recent tweet, the most recent headline, the most recent argument between policymakers. I find it very hard to have an honest conversation about policy now. I find it very hard to have an honest conversation about fundamentals now, because even when I propose some sort of thought process, maintaining as close to an impartial bias as I can is so important because I usually come up with a trade idea based on how am I wrong, not how am I right. And I find that there's a lot of survivorship or selection bias in what we read and how we vet our own ideas and as a trader, how we look at our own performance. And so I spend a great deal of time trying to balance that fundamental nature of what am I missing? What don't I know? Because if it is known in the market, then it's already in the price. So I don't know how relevant that information is from capturing any sort form of alpha or helping our clients navigate tricky situations. So balancing that arm of things and then trying to then also come up with, well, from the small percentage of what I think I do know, how much does the rest of the world know? And that's what makes it so exciting is matching up technical levels and your own proprietary models to try and look at the world from a bots and stops perspective. That is the algorithms that start the move and then the stops that subsequently follow the start of that move. And then the fundamental analysis. For me, as I've spent my most of my career surrounded by you know, proficient, really specialized traders and sales personnel and, and, you know, and strategy and, and research, it's always been with a very Canada focused, as you mentioned, I've worked almost all of my career in Canadian institutions. And so I've been exceptionally lucky working in this tiny little world of people who are so willing to give their opinion and willing to give their time that there's no downside to me asking, okay, what am I fundamentally missing when I'm talking to some of the most proficient specialists in the market? And so balancing fundamentals is much less about my own opinion and much more about bringing in people who know way more than I do and who have done it for far longer, the veterans that you speak of, and then my own proprietary technical models to try and predict what's going on. I could give you an example if you'd want something as recent as today, if you'd be interested. Sure, go ahead. Sure. So um, TY today. Just to be clear, today being Wednesday. Yeah, so TY today, my Wednesday, and then TY your Tuesday North America closed, that big spike up on the back of the Trump headline tweet 
whatever you want to call them now. I don't, it's it's hard to even have a moniker for what these things are. But we saw f- around four hundred seventy-eight thousand TYs trading in a one-hour time period that caused that move, and it basically went from one twenty-eight twenty-seven up to one twenty-nine. I think we're pretty much where we, we were we were in TYs. That took four hundred seventy-eight thousand contracts. Four hundred seventy thousand. Today, the sell-off, my today, Wednesday, your overnight, it took, up until the point of the most extreme part of the sell-off, it took 190,000 contracts on the entire day to get us there. So you consider that time period. For one hour, it took 470,000 contracts exchanging hands to have a fairly aggressive move. And then in the space of my day, 190,000 contracts, we had reversed almost the entire thing. And so that's where I really look at the, the technical models to try and help. And one of my models that I follow very carefully is a volume-based model. And I wish I'd spent more time with you know, people who are very proficient in volume analysis. But you basically get these gaps. That spike up Tuesday essentially left absolutely no volume trading in between. And so you create these two bars that look like a jaw, essentially like crocodile jaws, if you can imagine volume on the left-hand side histogram relating to price and volume per bin, and then the, the just the general price action. And in between those, there's just a volume gap. It's just an abyss. There's nothing there. And so this morning when we set up, you had auction. Okay, perfect. We went in rich into the close. Perfect. Then you have this volume gap all the way down to 27 in TYs that was just going to get filled in. And I don't know if it's because it's got anything to do with VWAP or volume weighted average price or if it's just that just seems to happen, but it's consistent. It's consistent that when we have these gaps that create that kind of crocodile look, if you were to have volume as a histogram on your left-hand side axis, that gap just gets filled in. And it's so quick and it happens like almost every single time. And so this isn't some random person putting on a couple of hundred K of trading in the overnight session. As I say, the volumes were one third of what it took to get us up there to take us back down. This is just what one of the functions of the markets that we now face with, where it's no longer people range trading or big risk getting put into work. It's either the bots just pull back and say, we're not going to support the price action from the, you know, the top side or from the downside. We're just not touching it. Or the momentum models kick in and follow it. And so being able to predict those points of cross or those points of real inflection is is actually really useful in today's market. And that's something that, you know, I've spent a lot of time probably the last two years just trying to get myself more proficient in because I think it's very, very important. And today was a perfect example of it. If you look at TY, the intraday volume charts, you'll see exactly what I mean. But generally, it's very clear what I was looking for and what happened is exactly as you would expect it to happen for that model. So it's it's interesting. If I take a step back, if I look at this from maybe a bigger picture and, and maybe take it back to my conversation with Joel a couple of weeks ago, might that price action be telling on the broader direction of where the market kind of wants to be headed at this point? Um, so, yeah, I think that rallies certainly feel far less supported as sell-offs, as in it takes a couple of hundred thousand contracts to move us up or, you know, to, to form some place in the world and takes very little to take us down. And I just think that for me, I just can't understand why if I was putting on a, say, my PM hat, if I was a portfolio manager right now, I can't understand why you would want to be long the back end of the U.S. curve for anything other than at, like at asset liability management or LDI, 
I just don't know why you'd want to be long, long bonds. The amount of risk in being long a negative real yield asset, and that's what makes it no longer an asset because the return just isn't there. Like, I just can't understand. And so I think you can look at the CFTC data, for example, even though it's aged, you know, as of last Tuesday, it shows net long, uh, like the net largest short base in, in the back end. Steepeners are in play in the, in the hedge fund community. Everyone's well telegraphed. It's a known known at this point. But the CFTC data even itself isn't perfect because it doesn't include any swaps that overlay those futures. So it doesn't include any invoice spreads. So you can't actually tell if it's outright shorts or if there's invoice spreads in there. I just think that the back end of the, the US curve just doesn't make sense. And I just can't justify owning it uh, under any circumstance at this point. Even, you know, no matter what policy comes through, whether they, they, they come to an agreement or not, uh, you know, we have to cross the aisle or, or we have to cross the aisle to make it happen. I just can't, in my own mind, justify any reason to own the long end unless you absolutely have to. And that would be one of my, if I was sitting in a, uh, as a PM or as a client right now, that'd be something I'd be extremely focused on at this moment in time for the next two years. This isn't something I'm thinking for the next two weeks. I think for the next two to five years, the, this curve will steepen and it will move and it's going to move materially for a number of reasons. And so you think that we're going to get weakness in the long end, despite the fact that we have kind of, I'm just playing devil's advocate here because I, I do agree with you, but despite the fact that we have ongoing COVID cases, like we're not going to get a vaccine till probably, I mean, for the general public well into next year, the damage from the shutdowns and, and kind of the lack of general reopening and the lack of society going about its business is, is I think, uh, still yet to come broadly as, as small business continues to suffer here. And central banks are, are pedal to the metal here. I mean, they're, they're in no way going to back off anytime soon. But despite all that, you still think we can get the long end selling off? I don't think it's despite. I think it's because of that, in fact. And I think this is where I'm probably a little bit different. I don't think inflation is going to be the thing that drives the back end up right now in terms of an inflationary shock. I think if you take Bullard for, for what he said at 30% growth, you know, this recovery might happen quicker than we expect. And yes, I totally agree that there is a number of fairly worrying downstream effects of the policy measures that have been enacted, both at the fiscal and monetary level, as well as at the demographic level. I completely understand that. But let's just you know, say, for example, it does continue to get worse and we become more accustomed to the government writing us checks every month. Let's say that's what it comes to. At what price does that check have to get to for us to no longer be as worried about our jobs as our livelihoods? You know, if you're on the cusp and you're really, really struggling, what's the number? And that's what I'm focused on, because if this continues and the longer it goes on, the greater the probability that we face a universal style basic income. And I'm they'll never call it that. But if we get used to this, and the Fed and all the other central banks are dead set on keeping rates as low or negative as they can for a very long time. The need to save goes away because you're not making any returns on your savings. You basically have been guaranteed some form of income knowing you're going to be safe. And it's just a matter of how high does that have to get to get people to spend again. When you match that with unprecedented amounts of monetary policy action 
and unprecedented amounts of fiscal policy action, the end result is going to be a steeper curve. And now I would say right now, just because of the technical standpoint, I would just like to be outright short long bonds like in the US. I just, just from where we are technically, a close above the 200-day moving average, which looks pretty much set on right now, is confirmation for me. What you're saying is it would be the reverse of the glut of savings argument. So what, what central bankers Correct. have been raving about for, I don't know, 20 years. Too Correct. much money chasing too few assets, then there just won't be as much money out there. Do you think that's still the case even with central banks buying bonds, I mean, QE infinity? Well, buying bonds in QE infinity doesn't matter to you know the general public in, in, the, in terms of what's in their purse, what's in their bank account. It just, the, the central banks buying bonds does not, impact the general public it will from a policy standpoint it will from a socioeconomic standpoint but from how they feel and how they spend they just won't feel it the fact of the matter is these are unelected officials making decisions about the future of our generations and the general public haven't quite grasped that yet they have more power than any elected official in the world i would say and they did not get elected into these seats. So I don't see how suddenly the QE infinity really changes the outcome for the general public. It just widens the wealth gap. And so if you start putting money into the pockets and let people start feeling like they've got a bit of a cushion, that will drive spending. And if this recovery happens quicker than is anticipated, and as you say, it seems like, you know, we won't have a vaccine until the first half of next year. There's a number of items that say, OK, they're deflationary, whether you go down to three Ds of deflation or you just look at the, the general complex. There's so many people telling me this. But let's say Bullard's right. Let's say we get unemployment to six and a half in the next turn. And let's say we get growth 30 percent. What happens if this recovery comes quicker than people expect? When I look at the last major economic downturns and then the subsequent recoveries, 530s almost all the time has steepened coming out. So if we basically all believe that this is going to be terrible and nothing good is happening, then the tail event is actually a quicker recovery. And the tail event is that curve steepening faster and not necessarily due to the inflationary pressures. Because as far as I'm concerned, I haven't seen any proof that QE has been inflationary at this point. But with negative real yields, with everyone pessimistic about the growth profile for the entire world, everywhere in the world, what if it happens faster and we see the same type of behavior as we have coming into recoveries in the past where 530s steepened? I would leg into 530s today by being short 30s just because of where they are technically and then use some form of a backup in five years to try and put on some 530 steepener. That would be how I would play this right now. Sounds like a pretty pretty good plan to me. With respect to the uh, universal basic income, it's, it's almost like you're, you've been listening to Canadian Parliament. It seems uh, we are definitely headed in that direction with all of the uh, new schemes that they are putting in place here. But we'll see how that plays out over the coming years. Those were your views. You were out in Hong Kong and, and you get to speak to clients out in Asia, what are you hearing from the client base over there? I think it's generally pretty consensus. Number one is no one wants to do anything before the election, and so there's no no need to act. Number two is the front end ARB trades are still very effective. You know, looking at JGB's swap, even though the supply is limited, and so people are still fairly content being 
nestled in in the front end, which I think is a prudent strategy. I think in times of greatest risk, it's always prudent to try and keep your cash as close to home as you can and keep that solvency and liquidity buffer as plentiful as possible. You never know what the next credit crisis will look like or where it comes from, but with the amount of policy that's went into into play, I'm not sure how many tools are left at this point should we face a credit crisis alongside, alongside a pandemic-driven crisis. I do think that for the, the, the clients that we deal with here in Asia, they're dealing with uh, some pretty complicated and actually fairly structurally challenging issues where they have to have their yield hurdles met. They have to try and keep solvent and liquid. We haven't really seen a massive amount of default from the corporate side, as one would expect in a place where cash and credit seems to be getting pulled away because of fear. I just think that there's a real lack of direction because a breakout in the curve provides opportunities for our insurers, for example, where they can suddenly get some really good value and and buy dollars in, in the long end. But I just don't think that people are very comfortable putting risk to work right now. I think people are very concerned about the economic impacts of either elected president and the contest, like the potential contestation of the presidency leading all the way into January and perhaps February. And so that's really, it's really hard for people to, to manage through. But the clear and pretty consistent message that we get, we see it through our conversations and also through our trade data, like the flow that we deal with our clients, is high quality credit, high quality government, weighted average maturity of between three and five year is exactly where they want to be right now. And buying Canadian provincial or uh, Canadian government bills, swapping them to dollars has been an exceptionally attractive trade. Looking at if you take a one year, either of those, you're picking up around 28 to 30 basis points in fixed equivalent dollars. And when you're looking at US bills at you know 10 basis points, a pick of anything over 20 basis points or inside 15 to 20 basis points really is quite attractive for Canadian credit. We also are continuing to see really robust demand for the CanHow program in Asia. Again, just because it makes a lot of sense, you pick it's government guaranteed and it has a limited issuance cycle every year. So people generally like that in this region. So they're trying their best to not go too far down uh, the credit spectrum and not extend themselves too far out the maturity spectrum and all of it. and being fairly creative in trying to, to achieve those targets. Okay, that, that sounds kind of similar to what we're hearing on, on this side of the pond as well. Just just general conservatism and, and caution at this point. Almost feels like you're setting up for kind of a post-election big risk on spurt if, if all that caution comes off, if, assuming we get a result on election day. Assuming you get a result. Too much, exactly, too much. Long, assuming there's no disorder post-election, all that money comes comes back and gets put to work. Uh, that, that might uh, change things, I guess. I guess we'll see. Before we conclude, Dave, can you tell our audience what your top two trade ideas are at the moment? I suspect maybe you can give us a short-term trade idea and a long-term. I suspect I know what the long-term one is, but go right ahead. Sure. Yeah. So I think I could actually give you a long-term and short-term as one, and then I can look at the shorter term uh, as a separate unit. But I would be looking at selling 
30-year U.S. Uh, govies here and then legging into a longer-term 530 structural steepener. I think that makes a lot of sense for the, the reasons we discussed. And there's the inflation arguments and so on and so forth. But I really, really think that trade, even though people say it's consensus, I think it's consensus for a reason. And I still think it makes a lot of sense. You just have to trade a little bit tactically on the breakout of the 30s and then any type of material cheapening in five years, you, you, you use that to leg into your five studies and then you just put it in the back of your book and you leave it alone. I think uh, that one will pay well. Uh, short term, it comes down to the tail risks and, and what people generally are I'm hearing, and it's you, you mentioned it, is what happens once we get the election, what happens over the turn, what happens, you know, it's some predetermined day in the future. I still think that the turn is at risk in my mind in the repo markets. I know everyone pretty much disagrees on that, but because they say the Fed will do whatever they have to do to make sure there's stability, and we've already passed September. Just to be clear for our listeners, by the turn, he means year-end. Yes, yeah, sorry, the year-end turn. You know, September last year is when things really start to get pretty hairy. Always my worry is, is when everyone thinks that there's no way that it could go wrong and the Fed will do whatever it takes and things will be fine usually means that's when it could go wrong. I just don't see it being as bad as it was last year. But there's just not enough going on elsewhere that suggests to me we should be focusing our attention on it in the short term. And then medium term, I'd be looking at, I'd be very closely focusing on the credit quality and underlying balance sheets of of corporates and watching those leverage ratios, watching them very, very closely, quarter over quarter or semi over semi, year over year, and just keeping a very clean eye on that, I think there's there could be a shock coming to uh, to some some of the corporates, as, you know, and I would be medium term. That's probably first half twenty one kind of story that I'll be focusing on my attention on. But it's certainly something that I think we need to be cognizant of. All right, Dave, thank you very much for for joining us this week. Uh, I really appreciate your views, and I uh, hope you'll you'll come back and join me again soon. Well, thank you for having me. I'd love to come back. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. I hope you'll join me again for another episode. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise it constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. 
you should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.